You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by the Nazarene Student Center at the University of Oklahoma. Committed to sharing Christ's love through the students at OU, the OUNSC is meeting students wherever they are. For more information about the OUNSC or to have them come speak to your group, visit OUNSC.org or search for them on social media at the OUNSC. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Pastor Ryan Gage in Boise, Idaho. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Ryan Gage. Ryan is the Minister of Worship and Creative Arts at Namba College Church. Say hello, Ryan. Hello, everybody. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Um, kind of an interesting story. Uh, my parents divorced when I was eight years old, and my mother and I moved back to Oklahoma and ended up in Oklahoma City. Um, and my mother was, uh, involved in physical therapy for a couple of clinics there in downtown. Anyway, she had a client who attended a Nazarene church out in Midwest city, um, which is where we lived. And so the client was persistent about inviting my mother to church. Her name was Doris Davis. Um, sweet lady. She lived out in Choctaw actually. And so each week, uh, she would have her session with my mom and each week she would ask my mom, you know, if they would be, if she would be willing to come to church. And eventually, I don't know what, I think my mom kind of caved in in order just to kind of stop her from, (laughs) from asking. And so we went, I was 12 years old. I had just finished sixth grade. Um, we went, um, at some point toward the end of the school year there uh, to it was then Brzee Church of the Nazarene and now it's Midwest City Community Church of the Nazarene so that's where we were first introduced to the Nazarene life and the Church of the Nazarene so so I'm indebted to Doris and John Davis for for being persistent and encouraging my mother to to attend that's awesome how did you end up at SNU um well through the church um I was just starting middle school or junior high, um, got connected into the youth group relatively quickly. Um, and so I was first introduced to SNU through uh, our district called it Teen Talent. And then, you know, you would qualify to go on to Extravaganza. And so that was my first encounter with SNU was going and competing um there in that regards it was a lot of fun it was cool to kind of check that out and so did that all through through high school um funny thing was was that i was not sure if i could afford to go um to snu and so i had just kind of um just thought, well, I'll just end up going to the University of Central Oklahoma. Um, And so, you know, my senior year, I was doing a bunch of scholarship auditions. And so um, UCO had offered me a substantial scholarship. Um, And so my youth pastor, who actually now is the senior pastor at that church, he said, you know, you should really consider, um, you know, SNU, go ahead and just do the auditions and, you know, do extravaganza again and go from there. And so, so I did, and it all worked out that, you know, the scholarships that they offered me ended up being better than what UCO was. And then, you know, just finding out all about, you know, financial aid and all the 
came with that. It was it was definitely a godsend and a blessing that it all worked out the way it did. So. And how did you discover your call while you're at SNU? Um, I kind of, I feel like I kind of stumbled into my call of ministry, if that makes sense. Um, I had gone to SNU to major in music education and performance. And so it was my track to be a music teacher. And then in the summer, go and uh, perform, be involved in community theaters, you know, all those kinds of things. And so it was as I was getting toward my last year and a half that I sensed God was maybe calling me into a different direction. I didn't know what that was, but it kind of scared me and I kind of ignored it all at the same time. And um, on the side, I was traveling with uh, obviously travel groups for the school, choirs and things like that, but then also did a travel group for two, two and a half years. And so, so leading worship wasn't a foreign concept. Um, but at the same time, I felt like, yeah, that's not something I really wanted to do. Uh, and so I remember my last semester of classwork at the school before I went into student teaching. Um, and I don't remember the speaker. I don't remember what all was happening in that chapel. I just remember and feeling compelled to go pray and, and it was one of those prayers where I found myself saying, okay, Lord, you know, whatever you have prepared for me, um, prepare my heart, prepare me for how you see fit. Um, and I left it at that. And the awkward thing that began to happen was um, when I started student teaching, it kind of was becoming a miserable experience, um, which scared me because obviously that's what I had prepared for for all those years at SNU. And as that was happening, um, these opportunities for ministry kept opening up. Um, and so I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to grapple with it and process it. And I had talked to my advisor and one of my professors who happened to be Harlan Moore, um, the worship pastor at Bethany First Church. Um, and Harlan said, he goes, you know, I really see you in this capacity. He said, have you ever really considered, you know, that God is is calling this on your life? And I said, no, I don't, you know, church, church people are kind of crazy. I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, dealing with church people and musicians on top of that, that's just a whole different dynamic altogether. Um, but, you know, he prayed with me and I, I'm very grateful to him and actually to his brother, Phil Moore. Um, they were both just advocates of of helping students understand and uh, articulating the call of ministry in their lives. And so mm. um, I'm very grateful to both of them uh, who helped me kind of understand that, hey, you know what? Yes, you invested all this amount of time in school, but God is revealing something great for you. Um, and the beautiful thing is, you know, to the best of our ability, let's go and enjoy the ride while we can. And so, um, so all these avenues were kind of presenting themselves and opening themselves up and, um, as I was finishing my last uh, six weeks of student teaching, I had received a call from Scott Daniels, who was at the time, he was one of my former professors, but then also he had just taken a transition and actually became a senior pastor at a church in Dallas. Um, and he said, hey, you know, you've been recommended and people think that you would be great as a, as a worship pastor here. And so, you know, if, would you pray about, you know, the possibility of, of coming to Texas and joining us on staff. And I was like, Oh yeah, no, 
No, I don't think so. Because you know, here's the thing: it was it was a very established church, and you know, it was this church that had you know several staff people. Um, they had great expectations for their worship pastor, and so in the back of my mind, I was convinced there's no way one that they're going to hire you know a 23 year old fresh out of college who probably doesn't have a whole lot of experience anyway and doesn't know a whole lot about the inner workings of worship and music ministry and things like that. And so uh, he, we prayed about it. And so I said, okay, we'll come and interview. Um, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, this will just be great practice, just a good trial run. Um, but yeah, this is not going to happen. Um, and so we went and it was a great weekend. It was a great experience. Um, the interview went well from what I remember. Um, and uh, so we left and I said, oh, you know, I told Pastor Scott, I'm like, thank you for this. This was a great learning experience. And, you know, I convinced myself that I would end up, you know, in a in a small church kind of starting off somewhere. Um, but to my surprise, you know, they called back and said, oh, yes, we want you. Um, and, you know, offered the invitation to come and serve on staff. And it was it was a beautiful thing and it was a scary thing. Um, and I don't regret our time there in Texas at all, but man, it was a learning curve. I'll tell you that much. It was great. Um, go ahead and tell me about those first few years in Dallas. What, what was it like to be a worship pastor there in Dallas? Um, it was intense. Um, you know, like I said, because they, you know, they had expectations, you know, they had had previous worship pastors, um, like Ovid Young, uh, and so there is this rich history of of music and of worship in in this church. And so um, I think a lot of that for me personally was was daunting just because I had convinced myself, you know, I had to work really hard to maintain that same same level. And, you know, being being young and being fresh out of college and, you know, just kind of grappling with all those new things and being you know newly married. You know, there are a lot of new things that were happening. Um, in our lives there. Uh, and so th the beautiful thing was, is that the church was very supportive of, of us and very encouraging and very loving. And so, um, and, and we still hold, you know, Richardson church very close to, to our hearts because they, they gave us room and they gave us grace to grow, um, into, into, you know, becoming better worship leaders and better ministers and things like that. I think the hardest part about the position for me in the beginning was understanding that my job was so much more than just planning music and pulling off a polished presentation each Sunday. Um, I was figuring that out relatively quickly and well, but then there was the whole pastoral element of it. And so I think that was the part that kind of uh, frightened me, that kind of pulled me out of my comfort zone a lot because... Um, I know a lot of people don't believe this, but uh, I'm, I'm very private um, and it takes me a lot to kind of put myself out there and, and, and let people see me and just being vulnerable and things like that. And so, so embracing the pastoral role of my responsibilities was something that I grappled with a lot in the, in the beginning of ministry. You know, music was, music was the go-to. Um, it it's what I can do. It's, it's the gifts that God has given me. And I, I feel like I can do that well and accomplish things well in that capacity. So, so learning to not only be, you know, a great musician and a great church musician, but then also figuring out, 
uh, how to become a pastor and how to shepherd people and how to love people, all those things. Those were the things that, that I was lacking and I was missing. But, but like I was saying, the church was gracious to us and uh, they allowed us to grow and, and thrive. So, What would you say are those elements? Can you kind of pick out the things for us that you do that are not prepping and pulling off worship services on Sundays? What, what else is there to what you do as a worship and creative arts pastor? Um, you know, I tell people jokingly, you know, um, music honestly is, is the smallest portion of what I do in the course of a week, honestly. Um, you know, I'm spending time, you know, listening to songs and also studying scriptures with what the pastor's planning to do and not just the scriptures he's using for his message, but, you know, um, the psalm that we use in the call to worship, um, the epistle reading that we use as we go toward, um, pastoral prayer, things like that, and and working to, to figure out how music can be interwoven in the midst of that. And that's part of it. But then, too, I think the, the role and the scope of a worship pastor has changed dramatically. Um, I think the expectations for them to be pretty tech-savvy um, is important. And so, you know, I spend a lot of my time um, helping to develop um, visual content. Um, sometimes I'll partner here in Nampa, and I've only, I haven't been here very long, um, but in my previous churches, you know, I would work with our office staff to come up with vi- visual presentations, both for what we do in church, but then promotional pieces and things like that. And so so the, the scope of it is very broad um, and very wide. And so I think it takes somebody who is not only just musical, um, but they have to be, I think, creative visually as well. I think that's that's a new expectation um, in the church today for a worship pastor. Um, visually, just from the aesthetics of the platform um, and, you know, what kind of things you design that comp- or not compensate, but um, complement uh, what what this message series is going to be about when you start getting into Advent and Lent and all of those liturgical seasons as well. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think that there, a big portion of it is not so much music quite per se. And then you have um, the pastoral element too, you know, being responsible for the people within your ministry. So, you know, um, we have here in Nampa, we have a choir of about 50 plus people. So, you know, I'm responsible for shepherding all 50 of those choir members and then the worship band and then the praise team um, and then the media people as well. And so, you know, not only are you asking these people um, to, to do and to work hard for your ministry, but then you got to, you as the worship leader, um, have to be responsible for for their spiritual walk as well. And so how are you loving on those people? How are you caring for them? How are you um, understanding their needs beyond what you do, you know, on a weekly basis with your weekend services? I think that's that's very pivotal. So so I've, I feel like I've come a long way since those days of Texas, um, you know, being, you know, being aware of the things that people are walking through. Um, and it took me a while, you know, and, and it was basic steps of like my first thing that I implemented when I was in Texas was, you know, each week send, you know, a thank you card to five people or, or a card of encouragement. Um, and so I have a list of people now here on my desk. And so I try to keep up with that and, and do those kinds of things. Just letting people know that you are, you are aware of, of the fact that, you know what, they're living a life outside of our our corner of the world and you know though we only meet maybe once or twice in the week you want them to know hey somebody's praying for them 
somebody uh, you know is out there to encourage them and help make sure that their week is going great and that they're thriving and that they're doing their best for the kingdom outside of you know our corner here on 504 Dewey Avenue so so I know that you're kind of changing gears a little bit I know that you're on the ordination track um, and you were not a ministry major in college so can you kind of tell me about that journey uh how does that even work for you and how has it gone for you in your time yeah um it's been different, you know, across the, I've been now on four different districts. Um, our first district, Dallas, um, I actually did not start into the program there, so I can't speak into what exactly they do. And plus, I assume, you know, that's been over a decade now. I'm sure some of that has changed. So I really didn't start the, the educational process as far as, you know, ordination until I was in Florida, which is where our second church was. Um, and so the district was great because they would offer um, course of study classes on the district. And so um, you would take these classes for six weeks. It was one night a week. And so you were there with other people. Um, and it was great in that regard because you were, you know, it still felt like a classroom. Um, you know, you had your your readings that you were responsible for, you know, writing papers and all those kinds of things. And so um, the great thing was just the one-on-one -on -one interaction with people that you had there. Um, and then when we moved to Kansas, um, they did not offer that on a district level. And so I had enrolled in Nazarene Bible College and did it online. And so um, that was and that was new for me. I'm doing an online classroom. Um, I don't know if I necessarily liked it as well as being, you know, sitting next to people and talking and uh, being one on one with people. But it was still effective. I think one of my struggles was that I think I was a little surprised that you know, not enough of my coursework from SNU could be applied to to what I, you know, need to to reach my ordination. Now, at this point in time, you know, I know I have the years of experience, but it's a matter of just getting the rest of the classes. And I and I think they're all important, too, obviously. Um, and so I just I, I think that was one of the issues I thought, oh, hey, I kind of thought maybe a little bit more of that would have been uh been applied to to the course of study track and so so now this fall um you know i'm on a new district now and so i'm actually going to complete it through nnu they have a course of studies track that they offer uh to ministers and so i'm gonna i'm gonna try this route and see how it goes it looks very promising and and exciting um and i think a couple of the classes are being taught by people i'm on staff with so <laughs> so that'll be that'll be neat just to have um that insight and that perspective as well but i i believe that it's all of those you know the program in florida and the program in kansas that i was a part of both of them were great they were both challenging um and encouraging and i i'm assuming this one that i'm about to enter into next month will be will be the same way and so so it's wonderful what might you say to a young pastor or worship pastor who thinks, you know, I didn't get a degree in theology. I don't have time to do a course of study. Like, does this ordination thing even matter? What inspired you to be ordained? And what advice might you have to somebody who's wrestling with the call to be ordained? You know what? I was actually in that same position in Texas. Um, I grappled with, you know, well, why is it important that, you know, I be ordained? You know, I have a college degree. Surely that would suffice and, and be enough. And, you know, if I attended a couple of worship conferences, I would learn um, things, you know, all the more. But I think, you know, for me, what I've discovered is that 
um, the ordination process is again just another affirmation to your call and ministry and in the camaraderie with that that happens as well um, you know and so when I entered into the course of study program you know they uh, they marked me down as an elder or excuse me as a deacon you know uh, because I was an associate pastor and kind of geared to music and as I was kind of discovering you know what that meant and what that looked like I kind of in my one of my interviews there in Florida I said you know I I feel like I feel led to be ordained as an elder because I feel like you know um what I do on Sundays and what I do throughout the week as far as shepherding people um I think is very applicable to to what a senior pastor does um I feel like in what I do on a Sunday morning is still very much preaching the word though it's different it's through a musical form um, and then the other thing that I discovered as well was is that the congregations didn't view me as a deacon. And I, and I hope that doesn't sound bad. I'm not trying to undermine, you know, the role of a deacon. But, you know, I discovered that my congregation saw me as Pastor Ryan. And when there was a crisis in their family, they would call me just like they would call a senior pastor. And so um, I feel like what I'm doing is is very much on track to, to being ordained as an elder in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, am I comfortable preaching? Uh, sure. I don't think I'm very good at it. But, um, you know, I you know, I think God is is working on me, you know, with the classes that I'm taking. Um, and so but I think too, the other thing was is that I, I want to be prepared. Um, you know, I want to be prepared for whatever it is God is going to use me for. And what I've discovered in ministry is that um, the, the myriad is broad and it's wide. And so, you know, just as much as I could be called to play the piano and the organ for a funeral, I could just as well be called to to preach that same, in that same funeral as well. And, and that has happened to me before, too. And so, um, like I said, I think that the ordination, again, is just this this camaraderie. Um, it's the celebration of, of affirmation of your call. Um, and so I'm I'm grateful for it and I and I'm being challenged by it and I'm learning from it uh, from daily. And so it's it's exciting. And I, I can't wait to to be done. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that. Is there a book that you've read maybe for a class or on your own that has really impacted your ministry lately? Um, right now, I'm re- we are reading as a staff, uh, we're reading a book called Renovation of the Church. Uh, Kent Carlson and Mike Lucan, um, they were at a larger church out in California, um, and it was very much a seeker-sensitive model, and so they were, they were struck with um, the importance of spiritual formation and the impor- and how that looks like for the church and so this book walks through just their journey of going from a church that was a seeker sensitive model going into a spiritual formation model um and it's fascinating um just to read it and and see and try to understand the things that they walked through and processed um so that's a book that i'm currently reading that i really really love um as i am taking these ordination classes uh, I'm fascinated by history, uh, just in general. I'm kind of a history nerd. And so I have enjoyed, you know, reading the history of the Church of the Nazarene and just its beginnings and and how it was shaped and, you know, how Wesley had was shaped and formed. And so all those things are kind of fun and fascinating to read to me as well. So so I, I try to read as much as possible. Um, I'm also reading uh, 
Brett Peterson, who's a colleague with me here, uh, he wrote a book called Created to Worship um, that I have just now started reading. But as I've gotten to know him, um, it makes it all the more exciting to read you know, the book that he has and for the book that he's producing later on this year. Um, I'm trying to think what other books. Um, as far as a worship leader, I loved the book, The Unquenchable Worshipper. It was by uh, Matt Redman. And, you know, Matt Redman, who wrote um, Heart, Heart of Worship. Um, but it talks about, you know, going on this quest of being uh, an unquenchable worshiper, a worshiper that is not dampened or, or slowed down by the things of life, but, but being able to, to worship God in, in the wonderful moments and being able to worship God in the sticky moments of our life, the moments that are uncomfortable, you know, he encourages us and challenges people, you know, to, to, to keep praising regardless of the circumstances. And so that's a book that I tend to, to go back to frequently. And it's a quick read. You know, I think it's only 120 pages. You know, as I'm planning worship, you know, I'm always have that question in the back of my head of how, you know, what are people walking through? on a weekly basis, you know, what are the things that they are facing? Because I know that my life functions a little bit differently because, you know, I work with other believers, um, you know, so we sometimes are not faced with the same situations that people, you know, who work in banking or school teachers or whatever the case is, you know, and so, you know, people come in, you know, they come into our, our sanctuary each week, um, some of them with just heavy burdens, some of them with immense amounts of brokenness that they have experienced and seen over the course of a week. And so, you know, how do I, as a worship leader, um, in those moments, in those weekend services, you know, how do we, how do we encourage them? How do we point them back to, to the spirit and let them be refreshed and renewed and ready to go out? And so, so those are a couple of things that I, I, I like to read. And mm, I love that. Um, can I ask you a little bit about your experience as an African-American in the, in the U.S. and the Church of the Nazarene? Um, what is that like? Um, you know, I feel like I have had a very unique experience. Um, you know, I think the Church of the Nazarene is a wonderful place, and, and it's a wonderful denomination that I feel like has has opened its door to all races and I praise God for that. And I think here, you know, in America, obviously there's, there's a lot of work we can do, um, you know, as a culture, but then also as a denomination for me personally, um, you know, my journey is really unique in that, you know, since I am African American, all the congregations that I have served in are, have been predominantly white. Um, and so that's been fascinating in and of itself. Um, never have I felt uncomfortable with that. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, we, my wife and I, you know, we feel called to go where God leads us. And so, so for us, you know, being African-Americans and coming into these settings, that has, that has never been an issue for us and for our congregations, that has never been an issue as well. And so... I think my wife and I have been given an opportunity um, and maybe a little bit of a platform to to be a voice if people have questions, um, if they want to know, you know what, why, why does this happen or how does this make you feel? Uh, I was at a church, on staff at a church, and another pastor had come to me and asked me, you know, how did this church go about hiring you? 
um, you know, he he had a desire of building a diverse staff. And, um, you know, he came to me and said, how did they do that? How did they, you know, how did they find you? How did they go about hiring you? You know, do you have incentives? And it, and I took a step back from it because I, I understood what he was trying to say, but, you know, he, the way he was saying it made it sound like, you know, there had to be this magic formula or that there was some weird kind of crazy incentive to, to hire an African-American to come to a predominantly, you know, white church. And, you know, I told him, I said, honestly, they had my resume. Um, there was no, there was no magic formula. There was no pill. There was no extra incentive. You know, it was my wife and I praying about, you know, what God wanted us to do. Um, it was based on my skill set and the things that the church needed. Um, it was never an issue of, you know, that this church needed an African-American to come in and bring diversity. And so, um, you know, it's a hard question and, and it's a hard thing to navigate. Um, you know, you want to be sensitive to to all parties. You want to be sensitive to all sides. Um, but I think, and I truly believe this, you know, that people will see and will be attracted to your church based upon who they see from you. You know, if they can see Christ, if you are revealing Christ to them and through them, um, you know, they will they will then be enticed and, and attracted to, hey, we should come check out your church. What are they doing over there? How are you shaped? You know, why are you different and set apart from from the rest of us? And so, you know, I can tell you that, you know, I, sometimes people think that, you know, if you hire a black person on staff, that is going to um, open this floodgate and, you know, invite a whole bunch of African-Americans to come be a part of your church. No one has ever said that to me. Um, that has, to my knowledge, that has never been um, the reasoning of my hiring to go to different churches. And I can tell you for a fact, you know, all the churches that I have served at, that has not happened. You know, um, you know, there has not been this, you know, influx or inflow of, of multiculturalism because I came on staff somewhere. Um, but if anything, I think my coming on staff to these different churches just brought in an awareness to to race and an awareness to other cultures um and and how that shapes the kingdom and how you know how we respond as churches to different scenarios and situations um we are very unique and i think i have already said that you know our journey has been very unique um and we feel very fortunate and very blessed um, to provide, you know, any kind of insight. Like, I guess I want to ask you about your experience as an African-American in a predominantly white church. Are there maybe stories you could tell to kind of illustrate your experience? Are there moments that have shaped you and made you think, oh, I I need to, like, pay a little bit of attention to, to this or that? Mm-hmm. Um... You know, I think people are always kind of mindful about, you know, what they say. I think what is fascinating, especially nowadays, in dealing with social media, um, you know, how one, one, how that plays a significant part in our lives, um, how, two, 
um, how people are shaped by that and how people are watching how we respond. You know, I, I jokingly will always sing, you know, oh, be careful, little hands, what you tweet. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you post. Um, you know, I, I jokingly say that sometimes because there have been moments where, you know, we'll take the last couple of weeks, for example, you know, with all the shootings that have been happening, um, you know, it was interesting to, to watch people post things and to comment on things um, in such a way that made me question my relationship with them as an African-American. Um, you know, the, I feel like the problem with social media is that, you know, we can paint in these big, broad strokes um, and leave it out there. And what we forget is, is that, you know, people hold on to that. They hold on to to what you are saying in that and what you are believing and it and it kind of calls into action a little bit you know how you know do you really mean that if you believe that you know one of these people who were victims of these shootings if you truly believe that they deserve that because you know they were african-american or they met this stereotype of an african-american you know a person who has a thuggish persona or whatever the case might be, um, then that makes me call into question my relationship with you. Because then I would feel like, you know, you view me in that same light. Um, and, and and so it's it's a hard balance. It's, it's something, you know, that, you know, I personally tread lightly with. Me personally, I don't, I tend to not comment on things in that nature and not because and someone even asked me about this you know why don't you say anything why don't you why don't you speak out and make your voice heard and and what i told this person is is that you know what social media is not the platform for that um you know my silence on there is not that i am indifferent or that i'm not intolerant it's just that there is not the space to have a healthy conversation sometimes i feel like there is not the space for grace in social media and so, you know, if we want to talk about these issues, let's talk about it in person. Let's talk about it over the phone. Um, there's something to say about hearing people's words as opposed to reading it and, and seeing, um, seeing it on a screen somewhere. And so um, I think most recently, those are the things that kind of that I see that are sometimes disturbing and, and troubling because, you know, those are people who are members of the congregation that I'm on staff at. You know, those are people who I hold in regard as far as, you know, uh, their their Christian walk and their values and things like that. And so um, I can remember um, back in 2008 when, you know, President Obama was being elected. Um, and, you know, there was just a lot of kind of race baiting that was happening on social media and things like that. And uh, a friend of mine who was a very dear friend of mine, you know, had made this statement um, and and it, it scared me and it shook me a little bit because I thought, oh, dear, you know, I've been your friend for a long time. And so how, you know, how is this any different than, you know, how is this person any different than me? Um, and, you know, and so, you know, we we tried to have a conversation, um, you know, and this person, you know, tried to relate it back to, you know, you know, President Obama's views and, you know, the fact that he's a Democrat and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the person just was not seeing 
the the derogatory slander of the comment that they made um and so you know it was very hurtful and the person couldn't couldn't quite understand why i was so hurt by it um and you know and so we tried to work through it we tried to get through and and i think we did i think we came to a place where the person understood it but but i think since then it has kind of created the strain um and just kind of this fracture in in the friendship and so you know i'm always i'm always mindful and i think i think we as as nazarenes as people of the kingdom i think we have to be constantly mindful about you know the things that we are saying and the things that we're posting and how we respond to the events that are happening around us you know are we responding with grace i think for me how i have been shaped by all of this and um you know i have never i want to make sure i say this right me personally i have never used my race um in a way to to get the upper hand um, I've never used my my identity as an African American as an opportunity to, you know, to to climb the ladder or to excel anyway. And I and and I like to think too that that my race has not been used in that regard as well. Um, I I can't say if that's true or not. I can say that I've never felt that way. Um, but it's a it is a a very it's a very delicate conversation to have um but i am i am glad and i am hopeful um you know for for the church of the nazarene and how you know you know we have the you know the african american nazarene alliance association and they do great things um and, you know it's a beautiful partnership that's just bringing awareness of 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 the culture of of who we are um and i think it's beautiful and i think that that inspires me and that and it gives me hope for for the future of our denomination well that kind of leads me to my last question is uh, what inspires you to stay in the church of the nazarene what keeps you here you know i think uh in a lot of ways and i know i think brent peterson said this too um I feel indebted to the Church of Nazarene. I feel like, you know, the church saved me. Um, you know, I was introduced to the Church of the Nazarene at a point in my life that was extremely low. They loved me. They embraced me, you know, for who I am. And so, you know, I think that is one of the things that has that has kept me there. There is this there is this allegiance to uh to the people of God, and there is this allegiance to, to holiness um, that I I couldn't imagine, you know, walking away from. And there have been opportunities that I've been offered jobs um, as a worship pastor in other denominations, and it, you know, it felt like you're kind of like betraying, you know, a brother or a sister, um, you know. And so I just I never could wrap my mind around that possibility of of leaving the church leaving the church of the Nazarene. Um, but there is, there is something so beautiful about, um, you know, moments like district assembly, moments like PowCon, moments like general assembly, um, where you, you feel like this huge family and, and, you know, issues of culture and issues of race kind of, 
you know, they kind of melt away and they kind of go away in those moments. And you and you just see people of God gathered together um, to worship, gathered together to encourage, um, to inspire, you know, and to fellowship as well. And so um, I love it, you know, and I like I said before, I'm a history nerd and I feel like I'm somewhat of a Nazarene nerd, too, because I love District Assembly. Um, I know some people are like, oh, District Assembly. Um, but I love it. I think it's great. Oh, I love General Assembly, and I try to go to as many of them as possible. Um, and I think part of that is because I'm a social, you know, I love being around people. I love, you know, reconnecting with people. Um, and so I, I find hope, especially in those moments when, when we're all together in those settings because we're we're banding together we're banding together um to continue to to share the gospel and tell the story um and remind people of the importance of of the sanctified life and of holiness um and so i'm i am hopeful about the future of the church of the nazarene um you know i'm hopeful for all the young ministers who are coming up you know into our churches i'm hopeful for all the the young worship pastors who are sensing the call in the ministry. Um, and in a lot of ways too, I feel challenged into how to give back to them. You know, you know, how am I, you know, cause my wife tells me, she goes, you know, Ryan, you are now getting closer to that age where, you know, people kind of look to you. And I, I somewhat have, I, I struggle with that because I still feel like I'm 23 and, and fabulous, but, um, uh, you know, anyway, uh, and so, you know, I feel now a little bit of a challenge to, to give back and help support, you know, younger worship leaders and uh, people who feel called into not just ministry, but into worship ministry as well and help them, you know, journey through that together. And so I, I feel like God is giving me another unique opportunity here in Nampa and at College Church to to help um, to help support younger younger ministers and younger worship leaders. I would tell, you know, anybody who is in ministry that's listening to this, I would say, keep loving. Um, keep fighting. Keep doing, you know, the work of the kingdom. Even when it's hard, because we know we've been there. Um, we, you know, we know we've had, you know, Mondays where we come into the office and we're bombarded by those cute little love notes from, you know, people in our congregation that say, you know, the music's too loud or drums or, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, but you keep loving, you keep loving and you meet people where they are. Um, and, and I would say this, I would say this to people who are in ministry, people who are in the congregation. Um, I'll say this in response to um, all the events that are happening in our society with the violence and things like that. Um, be willing to listen and, you know, be willing to be heard as well. Um, you know, if you, if you have this opinion, you know, if you have this belief, yes, we want you to share it and share it respectfully, but also be willing to, to listen and not just listen half-heartedly but but listen completely listen to the entire argument you know listen to it in its entirety um i don't know if it will change your opinion but you have given that person um the platform to say their piece and i think in that is where we we find reconciliation
and I think in that is where we we begin to to build those bridges. Um, we just sang our choir did this beautiful arrangement of "I Then Shall Live," and you know it talks about um, in the second verse. Um, I know how fears um, build walls instead of bridges. Um, I'll dare to see another point, another's point of view. And when relationships demand commitment, there I'll be there to care and follow through. I think that is that is the emphasis of our call, um, not just as ministers, but as people of God. You know, as we leave our sanctuaries and go out into the world and engage with people who don't know Christ, you know, you're taking that relationship and you're being bold. Um, and, and saying, yes, you know, I want to follow through with this, you know, not just in a way of, you know, trying to lead people to Christ and drop them off and race and go, but to to really invest and care and follow through in that relationship. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things I love about what I do is that music, music reminds us of these things so much, um, just like the song Oceans, you know, um, holding tight and truly believing the essence of those words spirit lead me uh, where my trust is without borders let me walk upon the water wherever you would call me and that looks very different for people and that can be a very a very big difficult and maybe a hard statement for us um and so i a couple of weeks ago i was talking to our youth group about that and i said don't sing it unless you mean it I know you love the song and it's great and it's hip and it's trendy and it's wonderful, but think about what you're saying. Think about the, you know, even the very first line, you called me out upon the water. Um, you know, are we, are we bold enough to go? It's easy for us to sing about it. It's easy for us to talk about it and write about it and proclaim it. But are we brave enough to go? Are we brave enough to do the work that it takes to to make those relationships whole? Um, yeah, I would say that, and 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 I would challenge people to that. You know, hold tight to what we sing about each week, and be bold in those in those statements. You know. Don't be afraid to continue to cultivate um, a relationship with another person who doesn't look like you um, and, and embrace the ramifications of that. And not that you know there would be bad ramifications with having a, a, a relationship or a friendship with you know, a person who is not you know, the same color as you um, or who is an atheist. They, they are going to sense the presence of God through you by your interaction. And so keep loving, <laughs> keep working, keep going. So. That's beautiful. If someone is inspired by what you've said or they want to get in touch with you, how would they reach you? Um, they can reach me through Facebook. Uh, I'm always there quite a bit, jokingly. My boss says I might be on there a little too much, but that's okay. Um, but then also, too, they can email me at rgage at nampaccn.com. They can message me there. They can call me here at the church office. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk to, to anybody um, and, and keep the conversation going, keep building the bridges. And I said that, and I even remember 
um, back in the 90s, one of the theme songs for the denomination was Build a Bridge. And I know those of you listening, I know you remember it. Let me sing just a touch of it. You know, Build a bridge reaching out the hand of Christ. Uh, join together all as one side by side. So we, you know, we sing these songs. Um, and you know, I think I might, side note, I think I might dig that out and, and do that here in a couple of weeks. I don't know. But I, but I think it's it's important for us to to remember that you know we've talked about these things we've 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 gone over this we've we have opened this up as a denomination I think we just need to kind of go back and remind ourselves oh yeah we committed to doing this um, it's not easy right now um, but you know what we we want to stay committed to that we want to keep building bridges you know, join together reaching out build a bridge yeah all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I, I think that it's important that, you know, if we're singing about it, if we're writing songs about it, by golly, we better go out and do it. You know what I mean? Um, and so I, I don't know, I might get in trouble for saying that. Who knows? Um, but no, I think it's, it's very important for us to, to, to hold fast to, to those things, to continue to making, making connections and, and building those relationships and being bold about it. No, oh, it's awesome. I love it. Thank you so much for your time and for making space in your life to, to talk with me today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And side note, let me say this. Yeah. I love the lead-in to this whole thing. Like, the guitar playing Holy Descent of the Lord. That is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>